glorious hymn. All right. I'm coming out of my technological shell here, so bear with me today. I hope it's okay. It's not a dark side. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Um, to begin, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 102. It's going to be kind of the core of our study today, specifically verses 25 to 28. And if you've already noticed the board, we're going to be looking into the immutability of God. And what an incredible attribute that uh, really stirred my soul this week, just studying and digging into this. And we could spend a host of Sundays looking into this because of its vastness and, and its comfort and confidence that it brings to our souls in Christ. So let's let's begin with prayer and the Lord's great help in understanding these great truths of, of his attributes and his person. Mighty God, we, we thank you, O Lord, for granting us this time and Lord to come before you to seek you to seek your face to lord hear from you and your word that we might glimpse at your glory that we might behold one of many vast attributes father that emanate that resonate that that just proclaim from your glory and your being to us as your children So, Father, with your Spirit's great help and presence, illuminate our hearts and minds as we look into these truths. And, Lord, work them within us that we might worship you more dearly, love you, Father, in greater sincere measures throughout life and every aspect of our life, Father. I pray for your guidance and wisdom for this vessel, this tongue, this mind and soul to magnify you in this. Thank you again, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Like I said, it, it appeared to me real quickly that this immutability of the Father as it pertains to God and, and God alone, which we're going to look at, <clears throat> it's probably one of the most overlooked and, and underappreciated attributes and I, I've felt a little comfort in this, hearing this from several other Puritans and, and commentators that they shared this same introduction to it, that we, we don't give it the probably the right focus that we, we should. But as I said, turn to Psalm 102. I want to read that to begin with. This is where we're going to focus most of our study, but we're going to be looking at a host of scriptures here today. Psalm 102, 25 to 28. The Lord's word says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. The first two verses there, 25 and 26, we're not going to go into that today, but just in the midst of the study, looking into those verses, and especially Stephen Charnock's 
commentary on this really confirmed just the eschatological truths for me anyway. <laughs> there may still be some decisions here among y'all, but what is going to happen at the Lord's return in his glory versus an, an annihilation standpoint of the created heavens and earth or a refining, a refinement of it. So like I said, I'm not going to go into that. That's a glorious study by itself. But it speaks of God's immutability here in this. So I want to I want to start out first with two lists. One's going to be real short. In all created order, can we list anything that's immutable? No, in the created order, anything that's immutable. Can you think of anything? Well, that's that's in his being, but anything that he has created, that he's brought forth, yeah. Heavens, earth, man, plants, animals. Anything within that would we classify as immutable? Pardon? I guess I want, yeah, I want to say uh, it's, it's truth or maybe laws. Like, like that's in existence until, or they don't change until he undoes it. But in all that he cr- he's created. Yeah, yeah. Short list, huh? Angels mutated, right? Or the nature of the <laughs> so just 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 wanted to put that in your mind that that as we look around in the created order, there's nothing that's immutable. Everything changes, except with God and everything that He issues forth, which we're going to look at. So very short list, and even in the political realm, right? Social realm, economic realm. Even in the heavenly realm, the angels, they mutated. Jude 6, they didn't keep their first estate. You know, now the, the angels that are there now are present with them. You know, there will not be a further falling away of the angel, angelic host. But the first created beings, the angels, did mutate and fall. Okay. But even in the heavens and the earth, from Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth, both created and founded by God with his word, yes, and for the purposes of his divine decrees to carry out on the stage, if you will, in all the created realm, everything there is mutable. It will change. We're changing like we talked in the first lesson. We're all still becoming. We're all still changing. Haggai 2, 2 verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and also all the dry land. So there will be, again, even a future change that is coming that God will issue forth, a future mutation and and a reformation that's going to happen in the created order when Christ has brought his many sons to glory. This is what the creation moans and cries out for, is that revelation of his glory. So there will be a further, a future mutation. But as we said at the beginning of the study, and Landon reiterated too, we need, we need to remember and careful 
that we don't look at God's attributes as, as isolated features, and we shouldn't try to rank them either one over another or pit one against one another. But remember that in the doctrine of the simplicity of God, all of these attributes are what? United. They're, they're working in harmony with one another in his being. Remember the diagram we had from Grudem just showing that all of these attributes, I know it's a very limited, finite graphic, but in the being of God, all of his attributes are present and at work, that none is more enhanced or, or greater than another. Now, they do work differently, right? Mercy is extended to a repenting sinner. Justice is extended to an unrepentant sinner. But they're still in harmony and unity in the simplicity of God. And this is one reason why immutability is so powerful, so very important. Sharnock describes it as, as the glory that, if you can picture it, that encompasses all of his attributes, that each and every one of them uniquely are immutable. His grace is immutable. His mercy is immutable. His love is immutable. So what is immutability? If you were going to give it quick or an extensive definition, what would you call it? Over time, yeah. Also unchanging within itself and also unchanging from outside forces being brought upon it that it cannot be changed, it cannot def- be defiled. It is, it is sure, it is steadfast, it's fixed and established. Like I said at the first, this pertains to God alone. It means that he alone is the only one unchangeable, immutable. He's fixed in all of his ways. It's impossible for him to increase or to decrease. He cannot become less than what he will become or declining in his fullness in any way. He is who was, he is who is, and he is who is to come. He never changes throughout this. Pardon? He is there. He is the I am. Consider for a second just a question to you from from a relational or a relationship standpoint for you in this life. How many of us have had family members, friends, e- even coworkers say something or promise something to either then change or modify what they said or even go back on something and forget or back up on what they promised to you, change their mind, whatever the case. What did that do to your relationship? How did you regard that person, even a father figure or a brother or a sister? What does that do when when somebody does let you down like that, make a, a bold promise, a sincere promise, and then fail you? Pardon? Yeah. Yeah. And even in our Christian walk, there are times when when our own zeal will lack, that we will 
the fire of, of our faith seems to wane, that, that the presence of God seems distance, distant. But let me ask this question, and, and I ask this very reverently, but something for us to consider. What if God could change? What would that do to our, our faith, our relationship, our hope, our dependence? The uncertainty. If he was not perfect when we first trusted him, or that his promises may change over time, or, or he may effectively change his mind down the road, you know, where could we place our rest then? We, we would be utterly with, without any hope. Ultimately, our salvation would be in jeopardy. Amen. Yeah. And we would not wonder, and would we not wonder, is his mercy greater today for I'm in greater need of this and, and his forgiveness that, you know, if we couldn't depend on his mercy in the past, then how is he going to be merciful to us in the future? Where is his strength going to lie? Pink had a great quote on this. He said, however unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by caprice or just his moods, who could confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name that he is ever the same, that his purpose is fixed, his will is stable, and his word is sure. So we can start to see why his immutability is so vital and so necessary, both in his being, but we're going to see some other aspects here in a little bit, that it is his immutability is what enables us to depend fully upon God that he never changes. And we can be certain, like you were saying from his word, that every excellency, every perfection of his being, his person, his character, is utterly inviolable. It is never to be broken. It is, it is fully sacred, holy, hallowed. And praise God, it won't be moved. This is why Jonathan Edwards said that this is one of the main reasons heathens hate God so much because he never ceases to be all-powerful and his wrath never turns from sin and that his eyes, his, his very presence, as we studied last week with Brother Landon, will never disappear or be isolated or, or localized, that he won't be aware of men's hearts everywhere. And that's comforting. That should be a comfort to us for every believer. So what I want to look at today is four key aspects of God's immutability. One is going to be his essence or character. Two is going to be his decrees. Three is in his word. And four is salvation. see that okay so first God's essence or his character the immutability of his essence and character back in Psalm 102 it said in verse 27 but you are the same and your years will not come to an end and what God's revealing to us here is that the entire essence of God all all the perfections of of his nature 
are notably the same, and they are also without any variation, any mutation from eternity past to present day to eternity future. And God's eternal duration argues his immutability as well as his eternality. Say that again. God's eternal duration argues for, good argument, his immutability as well as his eternality. For what endures is not changed. It is not added to or degraded because anything that is changing is not eternal and cannot endure. So as Sharnock says, true eternity is true immutability. And we see this in James 1.17 where he says that every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And what we see in the natural realm with the sun is likened to this. God in all his immutable attributes to us, that they don't change. They're as bright and pure and eternal in every attribute. There's no hidden realm to them. There's no, okay, got you on this one. There's no dangling carrot out there to deceive us. Someone want to turn to Psalm 55 for me. Verse 19. Got it? Okay. John will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. Thank you. Yeah, and what David's talking about here is that, that the immutable God is going to hear and vindicate his own, the one enthroned from old. And to look at this a little deeper, if we consider that immutability by itself and not related to other things is not a perfection. So immutable, just being immutable in and of itself is, is not, when it's not related to any other thing, especially with the Father, is not a perfection. But with God, because of his infinite essence, his wisdom, his holiness, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, it's a perfection necessary to his nature. He, he is immutable in relation to all that he is. And this immutability, as I said, Charnock talks to it, talks about it as being seen as, as a glory belonging to all his attributes, not just a single divine perfection. And it's not limited to specific objects. And this immutability, as uh, Brooks talks about it, which was interesting, he said he calls it the binding center in the unity of all his attributes. So his wisdom, as I said, is immutable. His omnipotence is immutable. His omnipresence is immutable. Mercy, justice, all of them are bound in his and their immutability. So it's true that that each of his attributes have a specific object. They they have a distinct act. Like I said, mercy, it works on the penitent. Justice, it works on the unrepentant sinner. But they all, in their union, derive their glory from this, this radiant beam of his immutability. And within his being, there's no shadow of, of imperfections in any attribute. There's no lacking. There's no need of developing to a greater 
or more form or power of effectiveness, it's present now. Nor is it becoming weak, being less effective now than it was upon creation or upon our souls at this moment or in the midst of our sanctification or in our lives upon our ultimate redemption. And how vastly different we are from from our Creator who is unchanging because, as we talked about, we're all changing. We're all still becoming. But we begin at time of our birth and throughout our own time on earth. We're changing. We're in a decline. We're heading towards the grave. And if as we we will perish as part of God's created order, but in Christ we have that hope of that, again, immutable, resurrected, glorified life. And this is why it's so vital in our time that in a number of our days we're, we're given that we're to grow and change with an increase in the grace, with an increase in the knowledge and the wisdom of God in Christ so that we may, as David said, present to you a heart of wisdom upon our entry into the eternal kingdom with the Father. And this is where we find our comfort. This is where we find our strength in, in God's immutable being and each of his glorious attributes. Because they're given to us, they're directed toward us, just as his promises As he says, he who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he never changes even in his promises, for they're all yes and amen in Christ. Okay, we're saying that God is unchangeable, right? He's immutable in his being, his attributes. But what about the case of the second person of the Trinity with Christ? Did he not change? Right, right. His body did. Yeah, and we we studied this pretty well, in, <laughs> at least in the men's study on the hypostatic union, being fully God, fully man, but he still had to grow in his human nature. He still had to grow. He still had to develop. He had to mature. He changed. But, and, he, and as Luke 2.52 says, he kept increasing in the wisdom and, nat- and stature and in favor with both God and men. And as well as in Hebrews 5.8, that although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. However, we know and see from Scripture in our study of, of knowing Christ as well, that if the divine nature had, had mixed with the human nature, if it had mutated or even converted into the human nature, or even the other way around, then it would mean there'd be a change in God. And there was in Christ these two distinct natures, even though he changed in his humanity as the divine who had taken on or had been covered with the human in the likeness of sinful flesh. The divine nature within him remained and remains fully immutable in his essence. And even now in his resurrected and glorified body in the heavens. So with the Father... So it is with the Son, so it is with the Spirit of God. They're all the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for us as believers, this is a guarantee that his promises will never be broken, that covenant promise that cannot be shaken and will not be amended. 
And it's a guarantee from God's eternal word that the very God in whom we serve and worship and obey is the same for us and toward us each and every day, each new day. Nothing changes with him. So as recipients of, of his immutable grace and mercy, how should we as, as mutable, as changing, be changed in our relationship with God? How are we to be changed in this relationship with the Father who is immutable, and yet we are mutable? Amen. Amen. That though we are mutable, and as as Jacob talked about his own son Reuben, we're we're as unstable as water. Our lives unfold in various stages through whether in abundance or in trial, in joy or sorrow, health or sickness. That the same God is is with us throughout each and every aspect and every moment of our lives, and His desire is to transform us, to sanctify us. That. Amen. Amen. If you remember from our biblical theology study, the redemptive path through Scripture and in our lives should be an upward constant progression towards Christ, towards his kingdom. Yeah, there's going to be little clips along the way, hiccups, but that should be a constant upward trend. And his unalterable, it is his unchangeable means of grace that are always present and available to us as accountable children. We are held in account to these things. How should this shape our prayers? (laughs) We're always in need of mercy, always in need of grace, whether in affliction or, as I said, in health or abundance or trial. And we're given the greatest example of prayer by Christ himself as, as to the reality of inviting and seeking that eternal, immutable kingdom, those kingdom realities into our lives to be in the world and not of the world, to be set apart from the world unto the Lord and, and in our church, that his re- redemptive immutable, redemptive, and sanctifying work is going to flourish in us in in prayer and seeking his grace and help. Malachi 3.6. Anybody want to read that for me? Amen. So in light of that verse, in a very familiar passage in Romans eight twenty nine to 30, how should we demonstrate from our hearts and our lives our confidence in God? He doesn't consume us because we are mutable and he is immutable. He is merciful, eternal God, full of mercy. And because he is the God who foreknew from eternity past, He predestined, he called, 
He justified. He glory and we will glorify us. If this is the reality of our life, then where are we able, obviously, where are we able to place our hope and confidence? And we do, do we see him present and in his presence with us? Do we comprehend the fullness of his, his being and his immutable glory? We should seriously ponder this. Not only is God immutable in his character and his essence, we see that he is unchanging, but we also see that he's unchanging in his decrees. If you would turn to Isaiah 46 with me. Keith, you got that? Yeah, verses 8 to 10. Amen. My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God is, in his declaration here, immutable in all his decrees. They are his eternally ordered plans and purposes. And if these plans and purposes could ever change, then that would say in that change that these plans are, are limited in their foresight. They're defected, they're, they're limited in their nature and their scope. They're inconclusive because they haven't reached a fullness in their intended purpose. But God's plans and decrees are not like this. They never change. Anyone else think of some examples of his decrees from Scripture? Some we've recently been studying in our theology classes about Genesis 1.1. Created the heavens and the earth. He spoke, let there be light. Those are decrees. Genesis 3, the promise of the seed. Psalm 2, 7, today you are, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Job 23, 14, for he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. So these decrees are both in the whole created realm and specifically for our walk, our salvation, our sanctification. Yes? His purpose, his plan that he issues forth from eternity past to cover through created order into ultimate glory and redemptive reality. Yes? That is part of it, too, yeah. His covenant promises are, are that's going to be more in his word, but that's founded in, in part of his decrees, yes. I have a question. Um, you know that God's immutable and does not change, but does God change his mind? And the reason I ask that is because, you know, being spiritual, you probably know what I'm talking about. It's just watching man. Yep. Can I hold your question?
question, and we'll get to it here in just a second. Okay, we're going to touch that. Thanks. That's a good question. Yeah, why why does God change his mind, it seems like, or change his plans? Again, just a couple more. Colossians 2.14, the decrees against us as sinners were nailed to the cross. So the Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So how do we differ in this regarding our plans and our pursuits? We tend to change our minds, change our plans. They're fallible, limited in scope. Yeah, brother. Right. We are, we're dependent on circumstances. We're dependent on events. Yep. Like you said, with people failing other people, this is something that from our we look at this outside of our control. But because God is self-existent, self-sufficient, He doesn't require anything unless He chooses. Right. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and we're limited in scope. We can only see till the next second. <laughs> you know. Yeah. If you remember the pen example, you know, he sees all events throughout all time and we're limited to and, and the I next second. That's part of his decrees. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mary. Mm-hmm. Right? So there we're talking about those things that God, uh, before time, already uh, put in order and stuff, right? Right. Because if you read the Psalms, you might hear the word decree. But that's not talking about things that God has predestined or anything that's occurred. That's talking about the commandments. Right. So just be careful about the purity of your verse study on that. Yeah. Right, and that's why I split out word two separate from that. So, Marie, did you have a question? Yeah, he directs our steps. Yeah, yeah, amen. Yeah, God, God sees all things before Himself in his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence. So I won't steal any thunder, brother, but that's <laughs> as, as, as in one entire prospect of reality. You know, it's simple, still simple illustration, but the pen, he sees all things. And he's purposed in eternity past those things that he will see f- forth and fulfilled that are from that come his commands to us because man can disobey his word but does that mean god's decree failed that's where we're going to get into that so all right 
God never had or has a plan B in mind, especially for regard to redemption, judgment. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 6 that there is an unchangeableness in his purpose. His purposes both override and encompass all human plans. Maria was talking about from Proverbs. And there's no one who can thwart, frustrate, alter, annul God's decrees and purposes. Those are established. They're fixed. They're not going to be altered. We can complain as futile as it is as much as we want, but those decrees will not be changed. Praise God. You know. Psalm 33, 10 to 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. That's a nice summary scripture. So all the leaders, the monarchs, the kings, the pres- even the presidents who've risen to power, who strive in their foolishness to try to thwart all these things, the counsel, the purposes, the decrees of the Lord, it will come to naught. He'll alter the plans to appease. He will not alter his plans and purposes to appease the people. And Marie already got my scripture, so thank you. Perfect timing. But doesn't this bring a comfort and a confidence in your soul, in your, your worship, to know that God's counsel will stand forever? That no matter who is elected, no matter what economic empire rules and takes over or one collapses, that those decrees will never be changed. And remember how interwoven his immutability is with his wisdom and grace to us as his children. Isaiah 14, would anybody like to look that up? Isaiah 14. Now, just another scripture on his decrees. And I'm going to have to either expedite or go to next week. Yeah, brother. Do you have a question? Yep. Um, Sorry. Thank you. That is verses 26 and 27, please. Rhetorical questions. Who can do it? Nobody. Nobody. What about Jonah 3.10? (laughs) Keith. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented and repented concerning the calamity that he declared, right? That he'd bring upon them. He didn't do it. And in Numbers 23.19, It also says that God is not like man, that he should repent, right? So anthropomorphic type language, but what it's saying here is God may change in his work and his dealings with man, but not in his will. God threatened destruction upon Nineveh if they would not repent, but they repented and he didn't destroy them, right? So his purpose didn't change, but his dealings with them changed based on their response and repentance. Pardon? Keep going. Okay. <laughs> no, see what I'm saying. Yeah, say it. Say it. Say it. Say it. Say it. 
Yeah. Right. Right. That's, yeah, and you just, that was basically my introduction to the word, where his commands, yeah. (laughs) So we are, man, uh, I've still got quite a bit here. Let me, let me, but yeah, that, that pretty much summarizes talking about his word, his commands, that his decrees still stand, but his commands are there for, all right, say what? I have more questions. Actually, okay. uh, Yeah, yeah. Theologians are talking about the will of command. They're not talking about what is known as the permissive versus the perfect will of God. Uh, right. Uh, permissive will has implied like uh, that's talking more in terms of you know almost like God allowing. Right. Uh, you to do something that is not really His best will for you. So you know this is very popular in Armenian circles and in Pentecostal circles. Right. Like yep. Yeah. And yeah. Then you're on that proverbial rabbit trail of trying to determine what that permissive will is. And yeah. Yeah. No. In his command? Yeah, that he would that he changes his mind on his will of command. Is that how we're to understand the distinction between those two scriptures? Between his decree? Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess that raises its own No, it's not that it's not that God is changing uh, in, in, in his essence. There is no change mm-hmm. in God. The change that we are conceiving, right, is the consequence of the actions that we take. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So we His command. His, his word, the perfect will of command. Right? If we transgress that will, then depending on whether we transgress or not, that will determine whether or not we can speak of God. 
Mm-hmm. And that's all the that's all the authors of scripture are saying. So that's why theologians have concluded that the best way to describe that is that God uses this anthropomorphic language, <coughs> right, so that we can understand how He feels about something. You know, like if we will, you know, if we will, uh, uh, you know, we will repent from this course of action, then the way that God thinks of that is that He will not do to us what He has promised in His law to do to us if we So, yeah, that's, <laughs> we could go back, those those are in my summary statements for the word, so yeah, we're, we're anyway, we'll get to that, but, okay, just to wrap up on salvation, I want to just comment on Romans eleven twenty nine. short verse, but just a wonderful promise, it says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, so in the assurance of salvation, God's not going to go back on his word. If he has saved you, if he has called you, if he has justified you, there won't be a, oops, okay, I take that back. Sorry, that was wrong. There won't be any negation of it. It is his work, his doing, and there will not be any revoking of his call. So, But we never find God repenting that he had given a man grace or effectually calling him those gifts and those callings are without repentance of God. So, let's go to worship.